Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. For any first-time listeners here today, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. Current Moscow time is 1649 at 707-608. And with that said, it's my honor to welcome Dan Donnelly, who has kindly offered his time this afternoon to have a conversation. Dan, welcome to the Bitcoin Stoa. Well, thanks for having me. No worries, man. So to give context, Dan's a friend of mine. We live in the same building uh, now, and I really appreciate hearing his perspective on things. He's got a background in philosophy. I consider him to be a really clear thinker, which is rare to find these days. And today we're going to chat about bees and his thoughts on money and life in general. So even for some context with bees, I've started to think of Bitcoin as this kind of living dynamic organism that's constantly evolving and adapting. Uh, and through my work with the Foot Collective, which was really all focused on community design, I became fascinated with various ways that we see collective intelligence in nature. And one of those a kind of paths of learning led me to bees and sort of collective intelligence being the intelligence that emerges um, from a group of organisms behaving together that, that basically can't exist at the in individual level. And uh, Dan is a steward for a colony of bees. So maybe a good place to start is like, when did you start beekeeping and why? What, what brought your interest to that? So I was thinking to myself, I've always wanted to have a self-sufficient uh, piece of property to care for myself and my family. And I always thought to myself, what would they do, you know, 200 years ago when the pioneers first came to the continent, let's say, how would they find a source of sweetness, right? A sweet, they don't have candy bars, they don't have general stores, right? right? So what would they do? And it occurred to me, it's either maple syrup or honeybees. So from there, I looked around Ottawa and I found uh, a local beekeeper and I purchased uh, two colonies to begin with. This was about four years ago. Okay. And I started keeping bees then and I've been doing it for four years. Um, and then this year is my biggest year yet with four colonies hoping to survive over the winter. Wow. Um, but yes, it was, uh, it was basically a, a pursuit of being self-sufficient, being able to produce for myself um, yep. and getting familiar with uh, livestock. Uh, bees are a good way of doing that. And then when I started working with bees, it really... Um, hammered home uh, this collective intelligence and this organization and this this beauty um, and symmetry in the hive and the way just handling them. It gives you all these different perspectives on uh, insects and all that stuff. So it really um, opened my eyes into, you know, how the world functions um, in general, but in bees in particular, it's just fascinating how a colony operates, how a queen and all the different types of bees, how they organize themselves, how they transition from summer to winter, how they survive the winter, mm. you know, how they, um, they self-regulate internally, they can kill queens, make queens, they, all these decisions are made collectively and they're not made right. by an individual bee, right? And I found that extremely fascinating and how each bee knows what to do despite not being necessarily told what to do by one particular individual in the colony, right? So yeah, dude, that's so powerful how they're basically programmed to just, you know, like they're working as one whole unit for the selfless benefit of the colony yeah um and they didn't go through like training right they don't come out as a larva and go through training on how to do this it's yeah. like pre-wired into their cognition and you know if you, like if you think of it in evolutionary terms the hives the bees that had this built in survived the longest because they had the best likelihood of survival but you know even um the whole well i'd be curious because in canada i mean we live in ottawa some harsh ass winters i'm assuming mm -hmm. these are are they european honeybees these are i have italians yeah that's <laughs> the, the most common common form of honeybee. You can also get like Russians, which are um, okay. very very good in the winter. Slow to produce honey though. Okay, um, they're hard to that stock is kind of hard to find around. More often than not, you'll find um, Italian or locally mated honeybees, which okay. come from come from Italian stock. 
And then in terms of like surviving the winter, do they just, I remember you, we were crossing one day, you're telling me some stuff about how bees survive in the winter. And just out of curiosity, um, what are strategies that bees use to adapt to the crazy cold? Like how do they survive or over winter? So yeah, it begins with like anatomically, physiologically, the bee changes. So they have a summer bee and a winter bee. And around when it starts getting colder at nights, they start producing uh, winter bees. Eventually the winter bees will kick all the summer bees out. And if you actually take a cross-section of a summer bee and compare it to a cross-section of a winter bee, the summer bee inside is much more um, fluid and viscous. Uh, like summer, it's more everything's moving, flowing. And then if you look at the winter bee cross-section, it's like a hard, lumpy fat inside the, the bee. So the bee is more insulated, has more protein in it. It's designed to survive in the winter. So they change their anatomy in order to survive the winter. What's interesting about bees, what I find fascinating, is that there's only one genetically significant bee in that hive and the whole hive is meant to basically make sure that that those genes get passed on yeah the queen and, and the queen right yeah. so i've always found that fascinating so in the winter typically what they do is they um the main main reasons why they die in the winter is they starve they don't have enough food um they either can't get enough during the season depending on the climate and whatnot uh they freeze they're pretty good at surviving in the cold it's mainly moisture uh, you know if it gets moist in there it freezes ice condenses that, mm-hmm. that's going to kill them um, and other than that is not enough population. It's a numbers game. So what they do is they cluster around the queen, they cluster around the eggs and they, they basically shiver and they keep that area warm. Wow. And then they eventually, when a, war- a warm day comes out, they'll sneak up, steal some honey, come back down, feed themselves. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they basically just form a big ball and they just shiver all winter. And then the ones on the outside die off slowly as the cold comes creeps in Dude. and they have to have enough numbers to keep that queen, those eggs warm throughout the whole winter. That is so cool. And just even a couple, like throughout this, I won't dwell on it too much, but there's a lot of parallels I see between the collective intelligence of a beehive and the collective intelligence of this uh, Bitcoin thing, right? Mm -hmm. This organism. Uh, Michael Saylor, who's a big dude in in Bitcoin, talks about cyber hornets. That's what he talks about. Like if you take an attack on Bitcoin, the cyber hornets of the world on the internet and on Twitter will just fucking attack you. It's like like a bee sensing an attack at their hive. They'll just, they'll go. And you know, two things there, summer bees and winter bees. Summer bees is almost like when Bitcoin is going up in price, right? Everyone's happy. It's, it's a great time. The challenging times, like the challenge of cold, the winter bees are harder. They kick the summer bees out. And that's the equivalent of the people who aren't holders or hodlers yeah. um, will sell their coins. They'll be essentially washed out. And then the people who are the hardcore hodlers, people who know what the end goal is, which is to accumulate the world's best money, essentially sweep up all the Bitcoin and it creates this harder version of holders. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like this turnover that happens every cycle. And then another thing that you mentioned was like this whole notion that everyone does everything they can to support, to protect the queen. And in this case, the queen is the protocol, the protocol of Bitcoin, which we never want to change because that is the lifeblood of this whole thing. And it's funny how everyone doesn't really matter what role they play, whether they're a miner, whether they're in finance, whether they're a developer, everyone serves to protect the protocol. Everyone serves to yeah. protect the queen. And it's, it's actually out of self-interest, funnily enough, but the self-interest, uh, the, the things people do to act out of self-interest actually serve the collective, mm-hmm. which seems like a very similar parallel to like a bee. And it's funny how you find these things emerge on different areas. Like sometimes I just stare at ants and, I've, and I kind of think to myself like, it's the same effect, right? Like they're all coordinating. Yeah. They create these crazy social structures and, and architectural structures. No one's telling them what to do or coordinating. Yeah. So how does this happen? How does a, you know, those, um, I think they're sparrows. How do they coordinate into these beautiful, flocks. like mesmerizing yeah. flocks and designs? And it's just this very curious thing that 
laws in nature seem to come up in different circumstances yeah. if you're looking for them. Yeah. Um, There's some like universal echoes yeah. that are found throughout everything, that permeate everything that you can pick up on on certain things, but they're universal in that sense. And I, what I love about bees is just, it's so fascinating. When you open the hive, you first go, when you open the hive, a couple of bees will come up, they'll put their stingers in the air and they'll start dancing. And that's telling the other bees someone's coming in. Wow. Right? Then they'll have the drones come out and the drones will come and start bumping you, telling you to, to bugger off. Yeah. And it's just very fascinating. You go and you smoke them. And the reason why you smoke them, it does two things. It prevents the pheromone communication because they communicate through chemicals. Okay. It also mimics a forest fire because during a forest fire, the bees would go into the hive and gorge on the honey. So when you smoke them, they all go into the hive and start feeding on honey, thinking that you know, there's a good chance that the hive may, may, may perish because of a forest fire. Wow. So it's just really cool to see how organized they are in that sense. Like it's, it's not like uh, no one's throwing up a flag. It's, it's, it's one bee dances, the next bee dances, the next bee dances. It all goes throughout the whole hive. They all understand what's happening, even though you know, only two bees seen me or something like that, right? So Yeah, and James in Australia, I, he told me this at one point. He said what seemed like chaos w- when I didn't understand bees and yeah. was really just scared of getting stung. Yeah. Uh, turned into a, a an orchestra. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so like I haven't witnessed this first person, but like I look forward to at some point because it sounds so amazing. Yeah, like really just like magic. If you're actually paying attention, you get rid of the fear and you kind of know what you're doing. Obviously, um, but yeah, just the the full on coordination of doing so, and I think that's really what a good company is, right? Like when you put people together and have this collective shared mission where everyone's doing their own thing, but they're also doing it out of uh, like with a shared mission in mind. Um, and I think it's really cool. It's always fascinating too when you look into the colony. If you ever want to come out and see a colony, I'll, yeah, I'm down. I'll for show sure. you for sure. But it's really cool because all the honeycombs are all made so perfectly. It's all symmetrical. It's yeah. almost like uh, geometrical patterns you see when you hallucinate. It's all it's like that level of yeah. symmetry and permeability. It's, it's really fascinating to see how, how through happen chance they end up producing a symmetrical result, right? So it's yeah. this, going back to this universal thing. These bees are picking up yeah. on something. Uh, they're not communicating or anything like that, but they're picking up on something that is symmetrical in nature and they're exemplifying it in their work, right? So it's like their Fibonacci sequence. There's all these mathematical things that you find as well that are universal that you can find in seashells. You can find in relationships, the golden ratio and proportions. Snowflakes. Like snowflakes, like, stuff yeah. like that, right? So th- these bees are, they're exemplifying that. They're, they're a part of that, right? And that's, that's what's fascinating is that close encounter with that mm. is, is what really draws me to continue Keeping, keeping bees. Because, yeah, I mean, it seems like a big, uh, like your hives are out of the city. You got to drive there. It seems like there's a decent amount of work to kind of maintain these things. So what's the, I mean, you get honey from them, but what's the biggest driving force for you in terms of the motivation to keep doing this? Because it is work, yeah. but clearly it's work you find meaning in, whether it's like inspiration from watching the bees or the honey, and it's probably a mixture of everything. Yeah. But like, if you were to say like, what's your biggest motivating driver to continue um, working with these bees and like keeping them alive and maintaining it. Yeah, so it's funny because amongst beekeepers, there's a saying you get into beekeeping because of the bees and you get out because of the honey. Working with the honey is, I dislike it. It's mm. messy, it's dirty. Yeah. I don't like extracting honey. Um, it's obviously tastes delicious. But if you didn't extract it, would that be bad for the hive? Not necessarily, no. Okay. So there are certain situations where they can have too much honey and they don't have enough space, in which case they'll swarm and they'll break off and they'll, half the hive will leave. Yep. As a beekeeper, you want to you prevent that. You'd rather keep that hive. Um, but no, there's no harm in them having too much. I mean, basically, it's, if they have too much honey, they're going to go on to a nat, uh, the, nat, the next cycle of the reproductive cycle, which is to split. Hmm. And the, uh, the queen will take half the bees and bugger off. The bees that are left or left there will make a new queen <laughs> to continue that colony. Wow. So it's just like a self-propagating it is. thing. And, um, so the bees, the bees eventually, they're in the colony and they find that the queen is being very weak, not laying very well. Uh, her pheromones are low. They'll actually 
ball over her and kill her. Hmm. And they'll make a queen cell. They'll put a larvae in the queen cell. They'll feed that larvae for 21 days. And that's what makes it a queen. 21 days? It's something like Dude, 21 is a fucked up number in Bitcoin. So that's crazy that it's 21. <laughs> it's tw- I, think, I believe it's 21 days. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's cool. Tw- the 21, 28. Um, wow. But yeah, it's fascinating because what determines whether it's a worker bee, drone bee, all these different types of bees is how much they're fed when they're when they're larvae. So mm. fed for three days, they're a worker bee. They're fed for seven days, they're a drone bee. They're fed for a full cycle of a larvae, they're a queen. Mm. So it's just fascinating how they how they manage that uh, within themselves. Yeah, and as far as I know, there's three kinds. There's the queen, there's the drone, and there's the worker. Yeah. And the drone is in charge of basically going out and mating with other queens. Yes. Um, the workers, essentially, when they hatch, they clean the hive, they feed the young, and then they go out and they'll forage. Yeah. And so the nurse, they start off, uh, worker bees start off as nurse bees. Okay. And then eventually they turn into foraging bees, and then their life cycle is done. So as a nurse bee, they'll stay in the hive. They will never leave the hive. They'll clean the comb out, move the larvae around, feed the larvae, cap it, all that stuff, fan the honey. To make it uh, make it pure. Uh, other than that, uh, they turn into foraging bees. That's when they go out, bring the pollen back, and then their life cycle is complete, and they, they perish and get replaced. And it's so crazy too that a bee will go out and forage for X amount of time, uh, and will literally just forage until they can't do it anymore and they die. Yeah. And that's like some serious dedication to like the hive. Like you're selflessly killing yourself by working as hard as you can to make sure that the hive survives. Yeah. And I remember one thing that James told me from TFC Australia was that every teaspoon of honey you eat is the full life cycle of 12 bees. And I was telling you before we recorded, I'm like, that gives me a whole new level of appreciation yeah. for the honey it's a I lot eat. Of work. They put a lot of work in for that honey. Oh, yeah, dude. And it's like, humans are soft as fuck. <laughs> That's always fascinating too. I, I could just sit there and look at the hive. It's like, a, it's like seeing a, a sci-fi scene of a movie when a colony ship rolls up and you have all the little, little, little interceptors coming out of it. It's like a, yeah. you have the colony and the bees are like highways. It's crazy. They yeah. just fly in and out really fast, straight lines. It's yeah. There's it's, like probably landing patches and takeoff patches. It honestly looks like that when you, when you look at <sighs> it. Yeah. It's and really I think cool. I think with Bitcoin culture, a lot of people are getting into self reliance. Like there's a lot of responsibility built into Bitcoin if you take full custody of your own wealth. And I think a lot of people start to latch on to these values of self reliance and responsibility. And so a lot of Bitcoiners are actually interested in self reliance in other areas of their life, like food, and that brings people to permaculture. But I I think people underestimate how important bees are for our food systems. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost like pain, like you never think of pain until you have pain. And I think we never really have an importance to understand the importance of bees until they're gone, then we're fucked. Right. And this whole idea that like something like 30% of the real food you put in your mouth was serviced by a bee. Yeah. And so I think a big part of the beekeeping industry is putting hives in farmers' fields. Right. So as a beekeeper, you'll approach farmers, they listen, I'll put two hives in your field yeah. to propagate your crops, right? It's all, that's a big part of the beekeeping industry is propagation, yeah. not, ju- not just honey production. Yeah, and it, uh, I remember on the podcast, James, that the pollinating side of the business was actually a significantly bigger business than honey. Yeah. Especially in like California, they talk about how there's like a million acres of almond orchards in California. Um, it's a monocrop. So bees don't live there because they only have pollen available for something like six weeks of the year. So there's a big business in bringing hives into those areas to service all the trees and then they dip out. Um, And I think that, you know, like bees are really important. I I went down a rabbit hole of learning about bees and it made me really realize that like, I've never been taught anything about bees. These are super important. We have a bunch of things that are happening right now with what we're doing with the environment that are causing bees to have a much harder time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made me just realize like, it seems like it would be a good sense of purpose to take care of a colony yeah, that, of bees. That's kind of what keeps me in it. Like I said, the honey is enjoyable. Uh, what's really cool about keeping your own bees though is that wherever your colony is, the honey that it produces is a different flavor. Mm. So the honey that I have out in, I've seen in your Carlson place, he's got lots of apples, apple orchids and stuff like that. So the honey that comes out of there is very, very, very floral. 
Cool. And it tastes really, really good. It tastes like flowers. Uh, the last place I had it, um, had a lot of bull rush and stuff like that. So it wasn't as sweet. It tastes a bit more like uh, candy cane, but it didn't have much floral notes. But you get the sense of like wherever the bees are, you get a taste of what the land is. It's not just, you know, honey isn't just honey. It's yeah. it's particular to that colony and to that biome that it's, it's developing in. Right, because they're basically take, extracting that from a certain subspecies, like a, a set of species of plants, yes. which will... Yeah, and I remember at the Parkdale Market, there was a beekeeper there, and he had like six different kinds of honey, and they were completely different in terms of the look. Like, they were different yeah. shades, and they would they wrote, like, there's tones of these berries or whatever, and yeah. I thought it was very interesting. It depends on the time of year. Summer honey, spring honey, fall honey. It's all different type of honey. It's all it's all very... There's so much to learn when it comes to, uh, to beekeeping. Yeah. That's what keeps me involved, is the constant learning. Yeah. And um, the ability to... It's really cool. You buy... you In principle, you could buy one beehive and have bees for the rest of your life wow. and never have to buy any more bees again. Odds of that happening pretty slim. It's probably gonna, yeah. you, you probably fail the first couple of winters, but yeah, yeah you got to be good to, to be able to keep those suckers alive. Yeah, it takes a, it takes a bit of patience and practice, but uh, yeah. it's just fascinating. Yeah, you can buy a, a stock and you build your stock up over years. So if if my four colonies survive this year, next year I'm going to have eight, hmm. and then the year after that I could have sixteen. I can keep splitting them and splitting them and splitting them. Wow! And I, at that point, I don't need anyone any external input right. to care for my bees. And will you rotate them? Like you said, they're in a different place now than before. Will you rotate them um, from um, year to year? or is Not it? necessarily, no. no. Not, where I'm, not, not for what I'm doing it for and where I'm at. Um, I'm pretty happy with the honey it's producing and the amount of flowers available to them. So I'm not cool. too concerned about that. Um, but yeah, it just it's one of those things of self-sufficiency. You make the initial investment and you're learning how to, learning how to care for them, yeah. buying a, a package of bees. And in principle, technically, you could have honey the rest of your life without any external input. And that's a fascinating concept. Very fascinating, and plus the service they provide if you're doing some sort of permaculture, even even just a, uh, a gardener, a weekend gardener, yes, yeah. it's valuable, right? So amazing. All right, let's talk about. Um, I love to talk about money. And right, right when you walked in, you brought up some, you smashed out some points that I was like, oh shit, we gotta dive into that. <laughs> so, you know, before we get into money, we talked about work, right? The bees do the work. You're doing the work of stewarding the colonies, and you mentioned that, you know, the the let's talk about the piece about self-awareness that you talked about. Cause I use self-awareness a lot in my personal vocabulary as like, basically the meaning for me is, am I aware of what I'm doing, the actions I'm taking, the behaviors I'm doing, how I'm interacting with other people. Um, and can I spend enough of my attention sort of analyzing and being almost like objective to seeing like, am I acting in alignment with the kind of human I want to be? Like, that's what I consider, consider self-awareness. But I think your point about the self part of self-awareness getting in the way of true intelligence, like, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was really fascinating. So yeah, I, I encountered this in my most recent sci-fi book. I read a lot of science fiction. And the reason why I do so is that everyone tends to think that science fiction deals with technology and phasers and lasers and all that <laughs> stuff. And that very much is a part of the genre, but the genre is much more broad than that. And it speaks more so to identity. And it it explores notions of identity through the encounter of alien, an alien. I don't mean alien as in like a creature. I mean alien as in foreign or mysterious. Okay. Right? So often you see it as an alien encounter. It's the most you know, obvious example of it. Anyway, I've read this book called Blindsight, and it was probably the most fascinating first encounter story I've read in terms of humans encountering aliens for the first time. And what it, the question it raised is that these aliens were hyper-intelligent, obviously very intelligent, right? But not obviously self-aware. So the question was then, that human beings, as being self-aware, we tend to think of ourselves as being intelligent and we confuse self-awareness with intelligence. When it could very well be the case that our self-awareness is an evolutionary blunder. We don't know that yet. It's possible that in 100 years, we're mm -hmm. extinct. And it could be because we think of ourselves as being so important. It's that, self, it's that understanding of ourselves which gets in the way of us approaching, communing, participating in 
that intelligence, which the bees participate in yeah. inherently. The natural intelligence of nature. That geometry that we see in the beehive, the yeah. geometry we see in the visuals, there's all this, this sort of sacred thing. Um, we kind of get in the way of ourselves of experiencing this. And it's always, I just, I just, the book itself is very fascinating because that's the question it raised. It's like, by being aware of myself as being human, am I not limiting myself in what I, in what I can understand? Because I can only understand things through that awareness. Yes. But it's very well the case that there could be much beyond that awareness yeah. that I can't be aware of. And you're only, you're, you're already putting yourself in a box as only being able to learn things that humans can learn. Yes. Like I remember reading a book, someone recommended to me, it's called The Language of Nature. And basically the guy starts out and says like, the only reason we stop talking to animals when we're kids is because we get programmed to think we're not supposed to talk to animals. Yes. Or, and I wouldn't say talk to, I would just say communicate, right? When I look at an animal and I like stare at it, I'm communicating with it. Like mm -hmm. they communicate non-verbally, yeah. but it just goes to show it's like if we didn't think of ourselves as human above everything else hierarchically, we wouldn't limit ourselves from being able to communicate with like even like trees or I anything. Did, I right? that further. Streams and mountains sure. and, and, and geological features we can communicate because that intelligence is in that geology. Yeah. We just get in the way of it. We, how could it be intelligent if it doesn't think like us, if it doesn't right. talk like us, if it can't symbolize like us? How could it be intelligent? Right? right. That's what we ask ourselves. And that's kind of, kind of the point is that maybe that is the wrong question. Maybe yeah. we aren't able to see this intelligence because we are so aware of ourselves. And if we were less aware of ourselves, we would be more participant in that universal intelligence. Interesting. I remember Joe Rogan always had a good bit where it was like, you know, people say dolphins aren't as intelligent as humans because like they didn't, they don't have computers. Like, yeah. Maybe they don't fucking need computers. Exactly. Like maybe that's something getting in the way of us truly connecting with each other because they just know they don't need that. Yeah. Right. And I think it's so, it's such a human centric perspective to Absolutely. think that we are more intelligent because we have all these things and we lack kind of the insight or the humbleness to say like, maybe those things are necessary. Yeah. Um, maybe nature knows better than us. And, and we inevitably always get humbled by nature. Yes. Right. To, to show that like, actually we're not the be all and end all. Like a tornado can come through and destroy a strip and like, we can't do anything about it. So yeah. like. So the, this book I was talking about is called Blindsight and uh, these aliens, when you first encounter the aliens, they're invisible. And they find out why they're invisible. And the idea is that in your eyes, for example, uh, anatomically, you have a blind spot in your eye. Okay, And your brain stitches these things together to get rid of the blind spot in your eye. Yep. These aliens were operating in that blind spot. So the, quest the question is, how much more is there out there that we are blind towards? That we, we, and, and then the developing this notion of being self-aware kind of fortifies ourselves into an understanding without the opportunity to go beyond the understanding and recognize the fact that there could be intelligence that's way beyond what, we're, what we even conceive of as intelligence. Right. Which is the examples we're talking about with bees, right? There's, there's something going on in these examples um, that humans can participate in too, but we tend to get in the, something in the way between humans and this communion. Traditionally, they call it communion with God, yeah. with intelligence, right? This communal, of, I use the Greek notion, cosmos, a beautiful and ordered whole, right? This, we, we get in the way of ourselves to experiencing this. We think of ourselves as being different other than. Yeah. And then I would even relate that to a book uh, by Alan Watts, which I read, and he's arguing that you're talking about self-awareness is I'm aware of myself, I'm aware of my feelings, aware of what I do and what I want to be and all that stuff. Alan Watts which is that this is all a fallacy. This is all mental fallacy. What, 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 what there only is, is experience. It's, it's not, there's nothing, it's not you experiencing something. You are the experience, mm. right? So it's that, it's that one, that one step that we extrapolate back. What am I experiencing? It's a Cartesian projection. It's like, um, we think of ourselves as something in our head watching these experiences, right? But we actually don't realize that these experiences are what we are. Like there's yeah. nothing else above and beyond anything we else, anything we think to be above these experiences, anything 
if we think that these experiences are happening to me, that's an extrapolation. That's actually not part based in the world and reality. Mm. What there is is experiences. And that is what we are. Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, I think I read a book by Alan Watts, like Living Within Uncertainty or Wisdom in Uncertainty. That's the book I'm referring to, yes. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah. interesting. I haven't read the full thing, but I, I can't help but feel like a lot of times when we create these schemas, right, where it's like, yeah. okay, this world is confusing. It's uncertain. It's making me anxious. I need to create some sort of structures. Yes. Even if those structures are false or they're limiting or shallow, yeah. it's like we create schemas um, to organize things, right? You, I, I look at you and I make certain judgments so that I can get some order about who you are yeah. so that you're less of a threat. Conceptualize it and grasp it. And exactly. Yeah. Create concrete concepts. And I think a lot of times it's like that's to our detriment because yes. even like um, Graham Hancock has this theory about like when you take psilocybin mushrooms, it's not that you're creating these projections of weird shapes. It's that you're now seeing the full spectrum of reality because you're not having the same robust filter that you've self-applied to reduce... Um, sort of the confusion yeah. and I always think of that where I'm like yeah like all the different wavelengths of light all the different ways that these atoms reflect light that we have no concept of therefore we do not like the brain doesn't create that structure yeah so and what's, it's what's like, in our blind spot that's what that's the alien that's the, okay. the other the unknown there's, there's yeah. a whole whole breadth of blind spots that we we tend to tune out of because on an ordinary experience we don't want to experience them. we can't experience them ordinarily because yeah. it wouldn't allow us to produce what we do right now right? in the sure. sense of wouldn't allow us to to be obey like to obey people and have like complete order be efficient and all these modern concepts of, yeah. of production and all that stuff right it wouldn't allow that so yes yeah, so I use Aldous Huxley's example he talks about doors of perception we take psilocybin and these sorts of compounds is you're basically cleansing the doors of perception he thinks of the mind, the, the brain is being like a faucet and then ordinarily we throttle back the faucet so it just drips. Right. Because if we allowed all that to flow out, we'd get overwhelmed and we wouldn't be able to discriminate our environment. We wouldn't be able to survive threats. We wouldn't be able to make choices. Yeah. So when we take these sorts of substances, it's opening that faucet and we're actually experiencing once again what was always there to begin with. So that's always in our sight, but our brain stitches over it and it makes these <laughs> sorts of concepts that, that, that kind of remove us from the situation. Yeah. Um, which is beneficial in, in a survival sense, obviously, because it got us here. Yeah. Um, but in a more meaningful spiritual sense, like these, who's to say that this is the proper way of doing it? There's, there's, there's more to be found in not thinking than there is thinking in, in stillness as opposed to uh, sound. Like it's, it's very fascinating when you start getting into the complexity of it because as humans, we have to recognize our inabilities and our limitations, right? And then once you understand the limitations, kind of puts things in perspective. Like the way I think is beneficial to me, but does it actually speak to an objective reality? Or like yeah. an object, like does it actually represent the world as it actually is? The odds are it doesn't. It yeah, and I, th I think there's a lot of suffering built into the convenience of having um, less uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we inevitably get these hits from reality where reality doesn't align with our schema of it, and we have two choices. We change our perception of reality, or we, we change ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people simply choose the first option where it's like, no, that can't be true because yeah. instead of being like, well, am I just thinking something false? And you get enough of those little pings from reality that disconnect from your current worldview and it like becomes really uncomfortable. Yeah. And then it's like, you got to either go through the metamorphosis and discomfort of tearing down your concept and rebuilding a new one, or you just retreat and distract. And mm. I think there's never been this many tools to be able to retreat and distract before. So Absolutely. that's yeah. oftentimes I think the path people go down, but um that's why I've loved Alan yeah. Watts. I liked. Uh, I found that book, uh, the Wisdom of, Wisdom of Insecurity, extremely beneficial because it, it just puts that in perspective. Into perspective, is that quit quit thinking as you, of yourself as be, as something different from your experiences. Your experiences are where you are. You you can extrapolate and say I did all this and you know I'm 
it's way we we form senses of identity that don't correlate to actually what happens and what actually is. So these these extrapolations, these schemas, I'll put it a different way. Actually, we um, it's something called uh, sim- simulacrum. The matrix kind of hits on this, and it's like what comes first, the map or the territory, right? So ordinarily, when you're let's say you're exploring as a pioneer, you would map what you see on as as you're exploring, right? What happens now is though uh, today is protected with technology and the you know ubiquitousness of technology is that we make the map before we see the territory. Mm. So we're creating the map and then imposing that on the world without actually letting the world speak for itself. So we constantly, in these schemes in our head, we're making the world be something without actually letting the world speak for itself. So we're constantly creating the map. We're, we're creating a simulation and imposing that on the world. And that spectacle is the world <laughs> in our heads, but it doesn't actually reflect what could actually be the world. Right? This, these are deep philosophical questions. Of, uh, you know, what is, what substance and all that stuff. Yeah. But... It's just fascinating to, to kind of explore these notions because uh, at a certain level, at a cer- you hit a certain point when, you, when you're doing introspection and you're talking about philosophy where it's like you always hit a limit. Like you, we can't know anything beyond this point. Everything before we can call into question. Everything after, we don't really know how to describe it or even speak about it, right? So it's just like walking that line has is, is been a personal pursuit of mine this whole, my, my, you know, throughout my whole adult, adulthood is, is, is walking that line between what is real yeah. and what's, Am I making real by thinking about it? Because the first philosophy book I read was called The Human Touch. And it's about how, yes, the world created us, but we also create the world. Right? So what's the tallest mountain in the world? That question is only meaningful in the human domain. <laughs> we can only determine <laughs> yeah. that with a human asking that question. Yeah. So it's the human Using pers- a human measuring tool, which exactly. is arbitrary. These rulers that we put on the world, these, these, these forms of discrimination we put on the world is what creates the human world. Yeah. But that human world it could possibly not reflect the actual world, right? And I think that's more pertinent today when we have technology and everything is so, um, everything's tickled out of itself and everything's instrument and everything's like, things can't speak for themselves much anymore. It's, it's, right. it's all transactional and instrumental and uh, to find that inherent kernel of value now, I think it's getting very difficult for people. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's, it's not that it's not there, it's just so hard to find because there's yes. so much noise in the system. Yes. And it's like, we, we don't get the signals anymore but it's not because they're not there. It's just that we've inundated ourselves with such a high level of noise, self-imposed. Yes. Yes. Like, um, and once again, it's like maybe we've made a decision that the only way to live is like this with all the noise because that's what society is. That's how humans live. But you know, I know you're a man of nature and you spend a lot of time out in nature. Let's maybe touch on that for a sec because I think that's something not a lot of people get. And maybe you know, you've told me some wild ass stories about crazy things in nature happening when you're alone mm-hmm. and the average person would like literally shake hearing that just imagining themselves in that situation so what makes you go out on these camping trips where you are taking i mean you probably aren't but the average person would be taking a big risk going out alone for a prolonged period of time in adverse weather potentially um what makes you do those things and how like what is the driver to do that because i'm feeling more and more that these days because every time i do it i come back with a totally different mental frame of looking at reality and seeing wow I have so much noise in my system and how do I shed some of the yeah. noise? Because I just got a taste of what pure signal is yeah. and pure signal is calm. It's cohesive. Yep. It's wholesome. Right? It's wholesome. It's wholesome. Yeah. Like sometimes when I go in nature, if I, if I sit there and I hear all the sounds, it sounds like chaos. But then if I like try and essentially kind of like be fully present and just think of the layers of sound, it is coordinated mm-hmm. and it's very, very smooth. Yeah. And it makes me feel at peace, even though I used to see it as just like a chaos of sounds of leaves of birds. But it's a certain almost, it seems like it's almost a certain frequency of sound that like I'm designed to take in. Yeah. 
And so what do you get about going from going out into nature and going on these um, like sort of adventures? Yeah. Like what brings you to that? I've always, I've always found comfort in the woods. I've always found, felt at home in the woods. That's where we've come from. It's always nice to go back there. Um, one of the driving forces of me going out alone is that people tend to feel powerless a lot in their lives, especially as uh, young adults. Uh, I experienced that myself. But when you go into the woods alone and you have nothing to rely on except yourself, it gives it reimbibes you with a sense of purpose and power. Like I have power. I have the ability to sustain myself. I have the skills, uh, the fortitude to endure inclement weather, to get through strife and struggle. Yeah. Not every aspect of the camping trip is pleasant, right? To, to sure. slug a 40 pounds pack for eight hours is not pleasant at all. Um, but once you do it, you can do it. It's like, it, it's, and I've always loved the mountains for that too. You go into a mountain range, you start at the foothills and you're like, Oh my God, look at the perspective. It's huge. Put your head down. You slog for six hours. You look back at where you were standing six hours ago. Oh my God, it actually isn't out of my reach. Mm. It's in my scale. It's in my domain. So it, going to the woods always helped give, reinstill that sense of power in me that I have that power. I've always had that power. It's something that's inalienable from me. You cannot take that from me. Um, and going to the woods and testing myself through bad weather and you know, challenging trips and all that stuff has always just been like kind of a, a reaffirmation of that, uh, an exercise in, in power. Um, because I think a lot of people feel powerless. Um, I took one friend camping uh, last year, and it's her first time doing magic mushrooms. And the whole time, she was shocked. The whole time, I have so much power. I'm so powerful. Mm. Right? People forget that. That no matter what's going on, you have power. You have the ability to control the external world to some degree. It, it, not to every, not to all. You can't fix everything, right. but you have you you have a way of imposing on the world. And don't forget that. And then uh, when you go camping or when you go hiking alone. All it is is my will and my, my power. That's all it is is getting me to the end. And to experience that, is, I find it's refreshing and it's kind of like a pure experience um, and, and what humans can do and what we're actually, what, what we actually are. It's you know, yeah. the, the will to action, the will to power, all these sorts of things that we can foster and cultivate in ourselves. Camping to me has been a way of doing that. Yeah, it's like a return home that helps give you back the self-confidence that like adversity, modern life adversity is not only most of the time false adversity mm -hmm. where it's like, Oh my God, if I lose this job, what's going to happen? It's like, well, you're going to be alive. You're probably still gonna be able to have food and you'll make it work. Yeah. But I think people lose this sense of confidence because they're number one. I think people are, are being stopped when they're younger from taking risks. Absolutely. Yep. And I think that's a big part of it. But I think we grow up with this fear of taking risks and this obsession with comfort. And that that's like fundamentally disempowering um, yep. and taking away our confidence that we can deal with adversity and that we can overcome adversity and actually be resilient. And so, um, That's yeah, I've always, when I go to the woods and especially when I take mushrooms in the woods, I'm always fascinated by trees. Trees are by far the most wise creature on the earth. I've always found it fascinating how they're happy where they are. They don't have to move. Think about that. We, we think that we have to go and do things to get things to do what yeah. we want to get yeah. what we need and be happy with ourselves. A tree where it is, where it, where it is, is where it's going to be. Yeah. It's all it ever needs. So like that, that sort of perspective is what we should be trying to cultivate ourselves where we are, what we are is where we're ever going to be. And we should be happy with that. Right. So yeah. rather than seeking things without, uh, you know, outside or external to ourselves, constantly chasing things, uh, try and be like a tree, try and sit, sit there for a little bit, yeah. soak up some sun. And then you'll, you'll realize that, yes, that, that is a very powerful thing to be, be doing. Yeah. But there's, there's power in stillness. Absolutely. Yes. And like trees are, cause we have that little property for TFC at, in Lustville now. So I spent a lot of time there. And like one of the biggest inspirations for me was how to design um, a community with a structure that aligns with nature mm -hmm. where resources are shared, 
where um, the elders inform the new generations or protect the new generations um, and just how to organize like a, a, a collective ecosystem that aligns with the laws of nature. Like in nature, no one hoards massive amounts of resources yeah. aimlessly in nature. Oh, get raided. It doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't fucking happen. Like no, you know, so like humans have accumulated this ability to just gather massive pools of wealth. It's very unnatural. Yeah. I think Bitcoin is like kind of bringing us back to the natural laws of, of no one person is designed to have that much monetary energy or, or um, stored time. But even just like the notion of a tree, it's like you can, you can start hacking away at a tree and harming it. It's yeah. still going to give you shade from the sun. Yeah. It doesn't hold a grudge. It's calm. Yep. It, it somehow, like sometimes in the winter, I'll go to Lustville and I'll, I'll look at the trees and I'll be like, oh my God, these things are out here 24-7, light and dark, harshest weather, harshest wind. Yep. They're still here. Yep. And it's so, it's actually, I find it very calming. Like I was in BC earlier this year and just the mountains, the imposing presence of big mountains all around you and then just the comfort you get from seeing big mature trees. Yep. It like, I swear my heart rate went down, my anxiety went away. It was just like, you just get a sense. It's like a little hint that you're supposed to be there. It's like, this is true home. That's where we're actually yeah. supposed to be. Or, and maybe not absolutely being sitting in the forest, but yeah. like more of that, less of the buildings and the noise or and least, the crazy. At least the mentality and the perspective that the forest gives us should be brought yeah. back into the cities, right? Right. Uh, I did that. I went to Tomogamy, which is in Northern Ontario this year. It's got one of the few old growth forests in, uh, in North America, pine old growth forest. We're talking eight, 900 year old trees there. Wow. And you go through these old growth forests and it's like magical. It's like a fairy tale. It's like, I believe in fairies. I believe in elves. I believe in dwarves. All these sort of like, you know, fairy tale fiction sort of like, I just think of adventure when I go in these places. These are old, wise areas. You know, there's lots of lots of wisdom that's stored in these areas. Mm. And just to tap into that, just by walking through them is, is so beautiful and so beneficial. Yeah. Um, and pay attention. So you learn, like, instead of taking a picture of it, just like absorb it, yeah. learn the lesson. How are you going to apply this in your life? Yeah. Um, instead of just looking at it as a novelty escape, it's like, this is, this is cl the classroom. So for me, it's always like, I always think about, uh, in modern times, we live in a spectacle, the back to simulacrum, we live in a spectacle. We think of things in terms of symbols uh, rather than what the things actually are. And when I go back to these old growth forces, I just feel like I'm in reality. I feel like that is what's real. That's what has been for thousands of years. That's what's going to be for thousands of years. That is the fundamentals of our experience is these sorts of places. And it's just, it's just BC, I went to an old growth forest. The old growth forest, there's something about them. They're very, very magical. They're whimsical. They're, they're, they're like goblins and fairies. All I think about is these sorts of fantastical things yeah. happening in these areas because they're just so old and so wise. And they just, they just represent you know, what, what's foundational. And yeah. what should be foundational in your life. And it's, it's like, uh, that's base reality. Uh, yeah. Confirmed. Do. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lots of mushrooms equals double confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about money. I would love, I love hearing people's perspective on money. Most people don't, I, I mean, most people don't have much of a perspective because we're not overall as a culture, we're not very literate with money unless we're forced to be like, if you live in Venezuela, you kind of know how money works because it's broken. Yeah. Therefore it's a concern. Um, how do you, you know, like the biggest things that I'm curious about is like, how do people view money? How big does money weigh in on their life decisions? Um, you know, like how do, what is people's relationship with money? So how do you think of money and sort of what's your perspective or philosophy around money? Because you, you're a very grounded dude, like even just your presence, like you're a very calm, grounded dude. And it's always a treat talking to you. So I want to, I, I really want to hear your take on money. So for money, for me, this is, this is a tough one. It's a big topic, but I tend to approach money from an ethical perspective. I tend to evaluate it in ethical language. And then from there, we can go talk on about, you know, because 
beyond the ethical realm of discussing money, there's actually like a, a material reality that we deal with on a daily basis that, right. you know, that kind of disregards the ethical considerations. But for me, um, most of the listeners and probably yourself are familiar with instrumental and inherent value, right? So the idea is that there are certain things in the world that are inherently valuable. Um, they're valuable in and of themselves. Uh, they cannot be exchanged or commodified in ways, although we do, do that. We do do that with money all the time. Um, examples would be like love, um, friendship, health. These are things that are valuable for themselves. You don't, there's no reason why to be healthy except to be healthy. Sure. Right? So, and then there's also the, the whole realm of instrumental values, um, things we do to get things that are inherently valuable. And money ex- is exclusively in the realm of instrumental value. So from that perspective, money actually has no inherent value. There's no reason to get money except to get other things. Right. It's those, a tool. And those other things should be inherently valuable. Right. Um, so money, in my mind, is meaningless uh, in that sense. Um, now, with that being said, it is also a world I live in in which money is the predominant way of exchanging things. Yep. And that's when we get into more of a discussion of like politics and social, uh, social use of money and stuff like that. Um, but in so far, I always, just as kind of like a backdrop, I always think that money's valueless, meaningless. Um, and then we see all these problems today with people hoarding money, for example. Um, like you said, billionaires having all this money and having an unnatural stake in the collective claim, let's say. Yeah. Right? Oh, I like that word, collective claim. Um, Dickens wrote about this in The Christmas Carol. And the idea of The Christmas Carol, basically, the whole book, the whole, the whole theme of that book is that money needs to flow. And as soon as money stops flowing, it grows cold. And that's when you get the cold character. Chris, the, the, I forget the gentleman's name. It's been a while since I read it. But the gentleman's name in the book, he's a cold, cold, hard guy. And he's not liked very much because he's hoarding all his money. He's greedy. It's right? like the Grinch. It's like the Grinch. So... It's funny money. how there's so many fairy tales around similar themes, eh? It's, all, it's almost Fair- as though it's not really a myth. Right? Yeah, it's like <laughs> the power of story. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, so the money needs to flow. And the only thing that, only time money can do good or bad is if it flows. So um, to have this disparate collection of money in certain organizations or certain individuals is inherently bad, let's say, just because the money's not flowing. And the money can only be beneficial to, to the collective if it's flowing. So Great. Other than that, I don't think, this is when it gets tough. So money in general, I said, is meaningless. And then what's concerning to me about money is how, how much it encompasses the way we interpret value. Um, yes. And how it perverts our interpretation of values. So if we take a uh, thought experiment, let's say a garbage man, a teacher, a policeman, and a politician, who's more valuable? Right? We can probably say, you know, I would say the teacher is the most valuable. Yeah. Ultimately, though, all the value is equal. Yeah, it's a perversion mm-hmm. of value to say that teacher is more valuable because we're thinking of her in a transaction or in, uh, in, into an in, instrumental transaction. Mm. She's more valuable because she educates our youth. Ultimately, though, all those people are human, yeah. and humans are inherently valuable. So that's an example of where we pervert the values of people of, of, of things by converting it into an exchange with capital with money. Right. So this is what Marx talks about when he talks about the fetish the fetishization of commodities is that time, which is an inherently valuable thing. Yes. That's the only thing we actually have is time. We commodify it by associating it with a capital cost, a wage, right? And from that, people are no longer confined inherent value in their time because they're only expressing their time in a transactional wage uh, relationship. Yeah, right? yeah your so time is a means to acquire the money. Exactly. It is no longer viewed as time itself as precious just because it's intrinsically precious. Exactly. So that's, an inver- that's a perversion of the value. The value should be time is inherently valuable, but now it's turned into an instrument. Right. right, so that that is what 
Marx would say alienates the individual from the inherent value of work, which is basically to be involved, to be part of a community or collective, to care for one another, to provide for one another. All these ways, like human beings need to work. Absolutely. We always have worked to some capacity. But the way in which we work now is, is, is a perversion of work. It's, it's, we work for something which actually doesn't have any value. Before, we used to work directly for food. We used to work to help our neighbors, right, for that kindness and stuff like that. That is no longer um, the predominant way in which we transact with one another. It's been commodified. And that is the reason why I say money is value, va- uh, meaningless. At the same time, it perverts the way we interpret value. So yeah, because people now are earning money for to buy things that actually don't have inherent value. Like you talked about the you know love, friendship, relationship, um, health. health. Yeah, you know, not included in there is the sports car, a bigger house, a better phone, and yet that seems to be where we're converting our time to a tool to buy things that have no inherent value other than something we've been programmed to believe is valuable. Yes. Um, and it makes us miserable and Absolutely. it's not a surprise, right? If yeah. you get something empty and you're told this empty thing is going to make you feel happy and you buy it with your time and then it doesn't make you happy, that sucks. So you look for the next thing that's going to make you happy. Yeah. There's no shortage of people promising this thing will make you happy. So, so then we go to the greed, the greed part, right? With these people, these billionaires, whatever, whoever you want to call them, um, they, they work where money becomes the means and the ends. So there's nothing else besides money. It's right. just like, you, why are you working to make money? Why do you want money? To have more money. Right. That's an insane and absurd notion. That notion does not, is not cohesive. It's not wholesome. You're going to be sick. Doesn't align sick. with nature. You're going to be sick if you think like that. You, yeah. you, you, money is an instrument and that's it. There's nothing beyond that, right? So in, in my personal life, wealth is to reduce my need for money because it's the money that's going to pervert what I actually care about. And I, what I care about is people and my friends and my family and all that stuff, right? But, I'm obviously saying this from a place of privilege. I don't have the uh, the immediate need to make money, which sure. majority of the world would have. Uh, majority of the world would have that immediate need to make the money to survive, yes. right? But probably to acquire intrinsically valuable things. Exactly right. So it's it's. I understand that I'm coming from a place of privilege in that in that regard, uh, but it's just we, we as a society and as a, as individual human beings, we got to realize that money is it's so secondary. It's so tertiary towards. To, in our ordinary experiences, money is tertiary. Yeah. We tend to bring it to the forefront and think it's the only thing, but it, it, we, could, we could do without it um, yeah. in a lot of ways, right? It's, I'm just concerned about money and, and the fact that, like I said, it, in the way we evaluate, evaluate value, money is not a good instrument in doing so. In doing so. Yeah. And in modern times, it is the primary instrument in which we do so. When I asked you the question about all those professions, we're, th- we're thinking about it in terms of monetary commodity time, right? Who yeah. spends the time the, be- the best? Yeah. Who's giving us the most? And really, that question is basically a trick question. They're all the same. Yeah, I was looking at we, it from an optimization lens. Who's going to have the highest net value, my perceived self-value in society? Um, but you're taking away from the fact that every human's unit of time is valued equally because humans are inherently valuable. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we can't make that sort of moral judgment on who's more valuable. That's an absurd question. Yeah, that's very, that's a, I, I really appreciate your insights because at that level, it's like, you know, my perspective and, and the perspective shared by people in the world of Bitcoin is if we fix the money and we align it with a more value driven uh, way, a fair way mm-hmm. of distributing money, we're going to have a better world because yeah. that's almost like an inevitable base layer of communication where if we want to move beyond societies that are limited by barter, we need some sort of um, tool to enable exchange. And that's where money comes in. And, you know, if we lived hunter gatherer styles, money is not money is no not necessary. Yeah. Right. I would argue that maybe between trading between tribes creates the need for some form of money or, or 
tangible instrument instrumented value. Yeah, there's a practical reason why we have it. Absolutely. Yeah, it solves to... an important problem. Yeah. But I, I completely get what you're saying where the money as it currently exists and something we probably even have to watch out for even in the world of Bitcoin is that the, the notion that money denotes value perverts our values of what we feel is valuable. Yes. And, and these, that is and these, so important to remember. And these, these, and these fundamental values are truly what make us human. If we're talking about what makes us human, it's that ethical layer that is, is where human beings operate on. Otherwise, we're just animals, right? So yes. it's, it's, to pervert that is to pervert the human being because the human being should be making ethical decisions. So all that aside, that's all the theoretical, my whole theoretical, but ultimately we do operate within money and capital and all that stuff on a daily basis. So we ask our, have to ask ourselves then, like how can we operate with money in a way that kind of preserves some, some of these values or sure. at least it lets, lets them be cultivated. And, yeah, uh, and not, gives them a chance. Gives them a, gives them a chance, right? So... There's an author named John Rawls, and he introduces something called the original state. It's a thought experiment. Very similar to the one I just mentioned, but the professions. And it's called the veil of ignorance. So imagine yourself as a policymaker, and you're going to be providing a population with certain services as a base level, fundamentals, like healthcare, for example. Okay? Sure. So as a veil of ignorance, imagine yourself. You don't know what sex you are. You don't know what race you are. You don't know what age you are. You don't know what gender you are. You don't know anything about you as an identity, right? So that way, when we make these sorts of decisions, we can make them universally for everyone. Mm. And with this thought experiment, we can determine things that we value that are universal that should be accessible to everyone equally, right? These sorts of things are like healthcare. Canadians obviously agree on that. Healthcare, education, these sorts of things we can all universally agree upon. And if I didn't know if I was going to be white or if I was going to be a male and like that, I would still want these things because no matter if I was white or if I was black, I would still get access to them. So these are right. things that I can't be disqualified for based on these, you know, little uh, superficial details of identity, right? So he does this and we, you know, there's certain things that we should provide to, this, to society. Healthcare is probably the principal one. And I would argue that healthcare best done is actually through education to take care, to help people understand how to take care of themselves. Absolutely. I mean, it's a whole other, uh, what, what we're going to educate people on is a whole different discussion, but we should be giving people certain baselines of education, yes. right? Access so, people. Everyone should have access to health. Absolutely. Let's put it that way. And education, right? So yep. what, help, what that actually amounts to is all like, as actually, there's actually limited resources and we have to determine, you know, what to provide all that stuff. That's a whole different topic. Sure. But the idea here is that when we do this, if we can provide everyone with this, this agreed upon base level of access to these fundamental values, these things that are inherently valuable to human beings, mainly healthcare and education. If we can provide that to populations, after we do that, we can let inequality be rampant. It doesn't matter. Sure. So uh, the fact that someone can go buy a yacht. Because inequality is going to happen. It's it, not, we all must have at least the opportunity to access those, that base layer. But after that, to expect, I mean, communism is a lack of, uh, like there's always going to be inequality. That's the whole point because it incentivizes certain people want to work harder to get this. They do that and they're they're inevitably unequal because they've made different trade-offs. But I think, I like what you're saying where it's like once the base layer is fulfilled, there's not a whole lot more coordination more, that needs to happen. It's not a moral problem anymore. Right. The fact that he can go buy a yacht and I can't is not morally inequality. inequality. It's, right. not, it's, it's not substantive anymore. Yeah. Insofar as I have access, the same access as he does to these baseline fundamentals. Yes. Right, so... That's what money should be used for, is to give baseline fundamentals to everyone. And then from there, inequality, you can be a billionaire. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. It's not going to, as, as long as it doesn't impact my ability to access these things, right. you can be as rich as you want. It does not impact me at all. Right. right? So that, we don't quite see that nowadays, but that's, it kind of gets, puts a bit of perspective and it gives us a bit of language to talk about what we should be doing, what we should be doing, because I don't think it's, communism is not the solution. We've tried the communism. We've tried taking wealth. <laughs> yeah, from it doesn't people, work. And it doesn't work. People are people. People are greedy. People are selfish. Is going to be corruption when you do that, right? It doesn't work. So 
we have to let people be wealthy. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Sure. There's, there's no harm in being wealthy insofar as those that are not wealthy, as wealthy as you, for example, are able to access those same opportunities. And if they can access the same opportunities, the discussion of inequality becomes moot. It yes. doesn't matter. That's now, a good point. Because now, once you have these certain base fundamentals achieved, now we're going to be nurturing and cultivating agency in the individual. So now it's up to the agency, the, the decision-making of the individual to get him to where he wants to go. Not everyone wants to go to the same place. So mm. you, can't, you can't force everyone to go to the same place, right? So this agency thing is very important in this sort of political philosophy in that once you educate people to make informed, rational decisions, whatever decisions they make is theirs to make. It doesn't matter whether it results in him buying a yacht and me not buying a yacht. It doesn't matter. That, that, that's, that's a moot issue. Right. Because the fundamental moral issue has been addressed. Yeah, and I think one of the problems with money these days is that people who have all the money are have a disproportionate amount of influence on how the rules get made. Exactly. And the rules get made unfairly such that that base layer is becoming harder and harder for the average person to achieve. Exactly. That's where the problem happens. People are getting richer at the expense of the people. Yes. Who, if we eliminate that, it yep. doesn't matter if you're rich or not. So it's not really that people are rich that's the problem. It's the fact that we have, uh, we're not paying enough attention to that base layer. Yes. And I think... Oftentimes it's like, if you're sucking that much energy from the system, you have to suck it from somewhere. Yeah. Right. And if you're sucking it from people not being able to afford their rents, like I think being able to have shelter is probably in that base layer somewhere. And this goes back to that agency, right? Someone who's struggling to make ends meet on a weekly basis, for example, can arguably not even be, be an agent. He's making decisions. He's not making decisions for himself. He no, it's survival based. It's survival based, right? So it's not, there's no agency in there. So it's therefore immoral. But insofar as we can get everyone to a position that they can make agent decisions, rational, informed decisions, it doesn't matter what decisions they make after that point. It can be anything. And this is how I'm going to tie it into Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin can preserve some of that agency because it has no ties into institutions and all that stuff. It's kind of like a self-contained entity, right? So it, in terms of money, it can be more valuable than regular capital or USD, whatever, whatever financing we're using right now, insofar as that the individual has an agent decision to use it however he wishes. And that's kind of baked in because you have to choose to use it. Yeah. Like there's agency. You, the only way you can acquire Bitcoin is if you have a sense of agency to make a choice to acquire this different form of money. Yeah. El Salvador might be a little asterisk there because everyone's kind of needs to use it now, which I don't, I mean, everyone have different opinions on that, but I think it's a really good point because it's about the agency yeah. and the, the ability for individuals to make their own decisions based on where they, what they want to do. Yeah. But that agency needs to be underlined by access to that fundamental layer. Yes. Um, and money that requires agency in order for it to be used fundamentally makes sure that we all have some sense of agency. Yes. And I think people in like, you know, women in Af Afghanistan that aren't even allowed to like get a book or get a driver's license don't have agency. Yeah. But they can get Bitcoin. And so they have some form of agency. Yes. And if that allows them to escape Afghanistan and then gain agency somewhere where politically they're allowed to, um, then that's probably a net positive. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's always going to be, there's going to be hoarding in Bitcoin there, you know, there's going to be the same things we have yeah. in normal money, but fundamentally the protocol is one of, you don't need permission. It's open. Anyone in the world can participate. It's fair. It's transparent. It's honest. And I think if you look at money as whether it's a good or bad thing, as this base layer of communication, it's how I communicate value to you, whether that's the best way of, yeah. the, it's clearly not the most human way, but it's how we've, ended up based on the size of societies we build um that base layer of communication the ethics built into that the, the way that that's built essentially creates the hard coding for how we build societies yeah. if the money's unfair society's unfair exactly yeah. so i think it gives us some hope and um, that's what i was hoping to think because like I was, I was thinking before showing up is like what can i say that's kind of you know meaningful i always get a little nervous being called on a podcast like 
I don't have anything meaningful to say. Dude, but you see, yeah, this, people who have the most meaningful shit to say, say that. <laughs> and it's what I wanted to do is kind of framework money in a moral perspective. Yeah. Um, and then from that moral perspective, we can apply uh, how valuable is Bitcoin, right? And then we can say it does imbibe certain values that which other currencies do not. Like, uh, So it's like that, that agency, once again, that is the kernel, uh, I think, that would give Bitcoin a bit more, uh, an upper, uh, you know, one more positive on its side as opposed to a regular yeah. currency is that sense of agency, a sense of control you have over it. Yeah. Um, that's very important. And I think, you know, this moral understanding, although it's, you know, good for discussion and conversation, it doesn't necessarily apply in everyday, everyday life, but it's always good to kind of, um, it's good to know. It's a good backdrop to look at things on. Right. So it's, yeah. It's, and I, it, I was legit, like we could have not done this whole podcast without talking about Bitcoin and everything we talked about would have a parallel and application to the framework used by people who use Bitcoin. So, yeah. and it was, it was, I mean, I think people who are good thinkers have a lot, a lot of wisdom to deliver, right? To, and this whole idea, we can literally record an audio segment for an hour and it's out there in the world for anyone to listen forever at no cost. Mm-hmm. It's pretty special. Yeah. And I think you, you know, all the smartest people, the people who I love talking to most, they all think that they don't have a lot to say. And I think that's almost like that sense of humility is almost baked into someone who, like my goal is to be as smart enough to know how little I fucking know. Yeah, and Socrates, yeah, Socrates, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's just, yeah, it's always, you know, the last part I want to talk to you about is like, you seem to have a pretty good life. Like you're, you, you, you're not, every time I see you, you're just calm. You're just like, you're, you're very stoic. You're, and, and, and like, you know what you want, you do it, you live according to your values. So I guess my question is like, do you have a purposeful philosophy of life or like, what are the big guiding lights that you use to guide your life decisions of what you do and don't do, how you live, who you have relationships with, how, how what you do for work? Um, I'd love to hear any thoughts you have about that. Cause I think it's very, you know, one thing that happens with Bitcoin, my, one of my theories is like, or one of my perspectives is that Bitcoin gives you back your time. When you find a vehicle that you can store your time in and not worry about it being diluted, you all of a sudden start to reclaim ownership of your time, which I think is a prerequisite for health so that you can actually start to think of things. But one thing having more time lets you do is think about life more. Mm-hmm. Like most people are literally just trying to tread water and stay alive. So they don't really think about life. Like, what do I want? What are my values? Am I behaving in alignment with my values? Am I spending my money in alignment with my values? And so... Bitcoiners tend to have more access to their time and more time to think about life and what matters and like developing almost like a philosophy of life that really resonates with them and that maybe they review intermittently. So yeah, like what, what are your thoughts on like having a philosophy of life, having values that act as your lighthouse so that you know what you're doing and you like have less choices to make because you've already made the choice of what actually matters to you. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? So as a student of philosophy, I encountered in my studies in Carleton, um, this book called, Philosophy is a way of life, okay? Because I always, everyone always thinks, and myself included, I used to think that philosophy is a topic of study. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it re- refers to ontology, which is the meaning of life, or epistemology, which is the study of knowledge, what it means to know, which, what, what is true, all, and moral philosophy. All these sorts of facets of philosophy are topics of philosophy, much like biology is a topic of science, and, you know, uh, mathematics is a topic of science, all that sort of stuff. When I read this book, uh, Philosophy is a Way of Life, it went back to Plato and Aristotle, the, the founders of Western, the Western philosophical tradition, and it argued that these folks um, did not conceive of philosophy as a topic of discussion. They conceived of it as a way of life, mm. as a spiritual practice. And it's something I kind of wanted to bring back into my understanding of philosophy because ultimately the ideas we talk about in philosophy are kind of inconsequential in everyday, in everyday life. Yeah. Um, so 
They tend, tend to be abstract sometimes. They're very abstract, right? Uh, and they don't, it's, it's kind of hard to, to ground them back into everyday experience, right? So just to put a pin in this, William Irvine, uh, The Good Life, he has a book where he basically brings, brings back the philosophers back down to a philosophy of life yeah. and basically creates a modern guide for how to live a good life. And it's like, yeah, William Irvine, really good book. Keep going. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's this lifestyle perspective that, uh, that kind of informs my, my daily perspective and how... Philosophy was characterized, philos means love, sophia means wisdom, philosophy means the lover of wisdom. Ooh. And the way they characterize, uh, they characterize this in ancient times is that, this is tricky, philosophy is an exercise in death, um, that says Socrates. So the philosopher is always focused on things with inherent value. He's thinking not of, of things, but about things with value. So um, is constantly dying because material world, the everyday experience, all this is kind of superfluous compared to what's substantive. And by substance, I mean that below which we stand. So what is underlying, fundamental to everything that we experience? And that's the philosopher's duty, is to constantly seek out that base, base, fundamental, substantive layer of existence. And he only can do that through ex an exercise in depth because dying is ultimately recognizing what is. And like... When you die, your body perishes, everything, all your experience perishes. But the philosopher thinks there's some sort of kernel in there, that there's some sort of universal intelligence or some sort of universal God. Whatever, there's so many words we've used throughout history sure. to describe this thing uh, that permeates no matter what. Um, so from that, it's kind of humbled me in that ordinary experience, ordinary troubles and worries are secondary to these principal concerns. And these principal concerns are what the human being what is Aristotle would call the telos, the purpose of the human being. The human being is drawn towards these problems. Um, so it's always been mine to focus on these problems and everything else is kind of fluff and everything is, is kind of noise. Um, that's kind of how I've kind of structured my understanding of the world and how I navigate through it is that uh, there's a way of piercing through mm. the noise and the chaff yeah. uh, to getting the things that matter, the issues that matter. And once you have a, a perspective or a grasp, you may not understand them entirely, but once you have a kind of a, um, a guideline as to what you're trying to do achieve, then everything else kind of falls into place. Falls into place. And the Stoics talk about this um, in the Western tradition is how you can fortify yourself. You can fortify your notion of, of, your, of yourself through understanding these things uh, where no, nothing else can impact you. You recognize what you can control, what you can't control. What you can't control, you don't worry about. Right, because there's no point in worrying about them because you can't control it. So, what, like, what's the point? Yeah. So, once you understand the things that me mean something to you, and you strive and get pulled towards it, everything that you find in your life that you that, that happens to you, happen chance, is kind of just like tertiary. It's secondary. It's yeah. It's it's transient. It's gonna pass, and it's like a crow creaking. It's like it doesn't it? It's there. You're aware of it, yeah. but it doesn't actually carry a whole lot of meaning. It's not a source of stress. Exactly. So, so it sounds like it's like the quest to find out what that base layer is of things that matter. Yeah. And then increasingly trying to improve your ability to zone in on that, to yeah. focus like a laser beam on that so that things external to that don't affect you. Yeah. Don't take your energy. Don't become sources of stress. Exactly. Because I'm, like I said, the power part, I'm in control. I'm in control of what I focus on. So I'm not yes. going to focus on things that are going to do me bad things that I can't control. Yeah. I have control over what I, what I focus on. So if something, if something external to me imposes itself on me, I'm only going to think about it insofar as the things that I can do about it. If I can't do anything about it, I'm not going to think about it. Yeah. And this is kind of what I do on the weekends too in my work, right? It's like, oh, I have all these problems at work, but it's like, what am I going to do about it right now? Nothing. 
Why am I thinking about it? Yep. Right. And that's hard. That's a, that's like a skill you need to hone Yeah. and you need that's to I mean. actively practice. Philosophy is a practice. It's a way of life. And it's a constant yeah. reminding of oneself to do this every step of the way. Cool. Don't get me wrong. I'm human. I all this stuff. Yeah, of course. I get thrown around emotionally all the time. It, it happens. Right. But it just, it's this constant bringing, bringing you back to this fundamental yes. thing. It's like begin but, again. It's a recognition yeah. of it. Not the actual thing happening. Cause I'm the same thing. I get fucking hijacked by social media all the time, yeah. but it's the recognition of when it happens and then reminding myself that actually that's not that important. Yeah. Um, so I shouldn't, and like most of our stress is self-imposed based on things that haven't happened. Well, it's <laughs> uh, Schopenhauer. We suffer greater in our imaginations than we do in reality. And it happens to me all the time with work, with this podcast. Oh my God. You start thinking all this stuff, crazy stuff's going to happen. You're going to, yeah. you're not going to perform well. You're not going to do all this stuff. Yeah. You come do it. Not so bad. Yeah. Right. It's just like you constantly worry about things. Yep. Uh, but you got to realize that those worries in your head aren't actually real. Those are all just fictional worries. Yeah. And you only got to focus on the things that are actually real. And once you focus on those, you're impenetrable. It's yeah. And like the brain is like a prediction machine, but so to hone it and, and like dial it in so that it's not wildly predicting things that have no reason attached to them yeah. is like, like you said, it's a practice. practice yeah. And I think that reframes philosophy into something less esoteric and abstract yeah. to something that's like maybe the most important thing anyone should know actually. Yeah. Um, and probably not beyond the, like the cognitive level of like grade 11 or grade 12 kid who's like, well, I think philosophy should be fundamental in, in education because it teaches you how to think, how to converse, yeah. uh, how to command language, uh, which is all very fundamental aspects of being a human being. Yeah. If you're to categorize ourselves as being different than animals, but, um, I've always, I've always thought that philosophy should be taught, uh, to young folks, uh, because it's a discipline of the mind and it's extremely important because if you can't discipline your mind, if you can't command language, for example, uh, that's one of the f few things that makes you human is the fact that you speak. Yep. So why, why, why wouldn't you train yourself to speak well? Yeah. And then likewise, uh, actions, we, we can act, we have free will. So why not cultivate good free will? So you, you, you do good things, you good, do, do good upon yourself and do good upon others. Yep. That's a fundamental responsibility of a human being. Right? And then just that constant, the, the philosophy constantly brings you back to that base, base level. What makes us different than animals? The facts that we think and we symbolize. So let's think and symbolize well. Yeah, that's all it is. It's and even defining is. well, like what is a good life? What is a noble? Like what? What is? What does it mean to be good? To act good? Exactly. And I think that, like through conversation and through like dialogue, instead of like unidirectional teaching, like this is how it is. It's like, what do you think of this? And you and I, there's just so much of a, there's a massive opportunity for education. Like little, I see my brother's little guy. He's two years old. He's so fucking smart. Yeah, he's little, he's a learning are, machine. Kids I'm like, are little philosophers. I love. And I and I also <laughs> right. yeah, yeah yeah. And I love how like adults often shrug them off as like they're doing silly kitty things. But yeah. like he's learning and he's literally training the adults in yeah. front of me. And I'm yeah. like, this is so cool to watch. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think we give kids enough credit for the amount of learning they're capable of absolutely um and the the potential environment we could create for them to flourish and do that and even for adults like why the same learning environment of just being able to play basically mm -hmm. and curiously follow whatever you're interested in um i think we just lost that with the institutionalization of education in kids or universities and it's just a big opportunity yeah so anyway dan thank you so much for being here dropping by the stoa to everyone listening i hope you enjoyed that conversation and uh, if you want to support the project, BitcoinStoa.com, you can send some sats to the QR code there. Um, yeah, Dan, thank, I'm, I really appreciate the generosity of the time. I know you're, you know. Thanks again. It's smart people protect their time. And the fact that you're generous enough to come have a conversation, I'm very appreciative. Time's all I have to give. I'm more than willing. So There you go. Wishing you all a great day. Thanks for being here and listening. And uh, ciao for now.